So please give a big welcome to Miss Charlie Jane Anders. Thank you so much, Cecil. Can we get a big round for Cecil? Amazing. And I love this store, and I'm so, so grateful to be here, and this is so awesome. So I'm going to read for about half an hour, which is what I've done at all my other book events, and it seemed to go okay, but... If you start to feel as though you have ants crawling all over your skin, you know, just raise your hand and say, excuse me, I feel as though I have ants crawling all over my skin because you've been reading for such a long time. And I won't be offended. I'll I'll understand. I'll stop. It'll be all good. (laughs) Snow crisped every inch of the world, making each footstep a slow descent. Lawrence and Patricia held hands. For balance, the the landscape shone like a dull mirror. Where are we going, Patricia asked. The school was somewhere behind them. They were going to have to turn back soon if they were to have any hope of making it to the ceremony at which the five top-scoring seniors were going to recite memorized passages and talk about what the famous Sarinian program had meant to them. I don't know, Lawrence said. I think there's like a lake back here. I want to see if it's frozen over. Sometimes if a lake is frozen, the right kind of solid, you can throw rocks at the ice and it makes a natural ray gun sound effect like pew, pew, pew. That's cool, Patricia said. She still wasn't sure where she stood with Lawrence. They had hung out furtively a few times since Lawrence started talking to her again, but Patricia felt like both she and Lawrence knew in the deepest crevices of their hearts that they would each ditch the other in a second if they had a chance to belong, really belong, with a group of others like themselves, a a group of other witches or a group of other mad scientists. I'm never going to get away from here. Patricia was knee-deep in snow. You're going to go off to your science and math high school. I'm going to stay here and lose my mind. I'm going to be so socially destroyed. I'm going to turn radioactive. Well, said Lawrence, I don't know that it's possible to turn radioactive unless you're exposed to certain isotopes, and in that case, you probably wouldn't survive in any case. I wish I could sleep for five years and wake up as a grown-up. Patricia kicked the frozen dirt, except I would know all the stuff that you're supposed to learn in high school by sleep learning. <laughs> I wish I could turn invisible or, or maybe become a shapeshifter, Lawrence said. Life would be pretty cool if I was a shapeshifter, unless I forgot what I was supposed to look like and then I could never get back to my original shape ever. That would suck. <laughs> what if you could just change how other people saw you? So, like, if you wanted, they would see you as a hundred foot tall rabbit. With the head of an alligator. But you'd be physically the same? You'd just look different to other people? Yeah, I guess. That would royally suck. Eventually, someone touches you, and then they know the truth. And after that, nobody would ever take your illusions seriously ever again. There's no point unless you can physically change. I don't know, Patricia said. It depends what you're trying to do. Plus, what if you could make people see or hear whatever you wanted and just mess with people's perceptions in general? That would be cool, right? Yes. Lawrence pondered for a moment. That would be cool. 
They came to a river that neither of them remembered ever having seen before. It was covered with a white layer, and the jutting rocks looked like the fake sapphires in the necklace that Patricia's sister, Roberta, had gotten her for Christmas. The river current kept the water from freezing, except for a layer of frost. Where the hell did this come from? Lawrence poked at the brook with his foot and broke a tiny piece of its shell. I think it's really shallow and you can just step across it most of the time, Patricia said. The, the rocks are easy to walk on except for when it's all icy like this. Well, this sucks. Lawrence squatted down to examine the river, nearly soaking his butt on the slushy ground. What's the point of ditching school if you can't go make laser noises on the ice? We should head back, Patricia said. They headed back. This time, they didn't hold hands, as if getting stymied on their expedition had left them divided. Patricia skidded and fell on one knee, tearing her tights and scraping off some skin. Lawrence reached down to help her up, but she shook her head and got up on her own. This was a metaphor for how it was with Lawrence, Patricia realized. He would be supportive and friendly as long as something seemed like a grand adventure. But the moment you got stuck or things were weirder than expected, he would pull away. You just could never predict which Lawrence you were going to get. And you could not count on Lawrence, Patricia told herself. You just couldn't. And you should get used to that idea. She felt as though she had settled something once and for all. I think being able to control other people's senses would trump everything, even shape-shifting, Lawrence said out of nowhere, because who cares what your physical form looks like as long as you control how everybody perceives you? You could be all deformed and messed up, and it wouldn't matter. The key is controlling the tactile as well as the visual. Yeah, Patricia picked up the pace and tromped back to the back parking lot, so Lawrence had to rush to catch up. But you'd know what you really were, and that's all that matters. When they got back through the parking lot's gravel slush pit, they found that the back door to the school was jammed shut. Locked? Frozen stuck? Lawrence and Patricia both tore at the door since the main entrance was all the way around the building and they would get busted for 100% certain. Lawrence put one foot on the white stone wall and pulled with all his track and field but mostly field might. Patricia pulled at the edges of the sharp metal handle which was shaped like a shelf bracket. They both tugged as hard as they could and then the door swung open. Someone was laughing on the inside of the door. Lawrence and Patricia both caught a glimpse of not-quite-uniform sneakers and a trio of pudgy hands before she and Lawrence both fell on their asses. Whoever had been holding the door shut from the inside laughed louder as Patricia and Lawrence tried to pick themselves up, and then a blue shape came arcing towards them, and Patricia barely had time to recognize a plastic bucket before a white arm of water sloshed out, and they were both soaked. Someone was taking pictures. Lawrence and Patricia sat under the up escalator at the mall. They each had a double chocolate, ultra creamy, super whip frostachino with decaf coffee in it, which made them feel super grown up. (laughs) They were lulled by the machinery working right over their heads, the wheel of steps going around forever, and they had a view of the big fountain which made a friendly splashing noise. Soon, Both their drinks were nothing but throaty, snorty noises as they took the last pulls on their straws, and they were both blitzed on sugar. (laughs) 
They could see the feet and ankles of the people passing on the down escalator between them and the fountain. They took turns trying to guess who those people were based just on their footwear. That lady in the white sneakers is an acrobat and a spy, Patricia said. She travels around the world doing performances and planting cameras in top-secret buildings. She can sneak in anywhere because she's a contortionist as well as an acrobat. A man in black cowboy boots and black jeans came past, and Lawrence said that this was a rodeo champion who had been challenged to a Dance Dance Revolution showdown against the world's best breakdancer, and it was happening at this very mall. A girl in Ugg boots was a supermodel who had stolen the secret formula for hair so shiny it brainwashed anyone who saw it, said Patricia, and she was hiding at the mall where nobody would ever expect a supermodel to go. Lawrence thought the two women in smart pumps and nylons were life coaches who were coaching each other, (laughs) creating an endless feedback loop. (laughs) The man in black slippers and worn gray socks was an assassin, said Patricia, a member of a secret society of trained killers who stalked his prey, looking for the perfect moment to strike and kill undetected. It's amazing how much you can tell about people from their feet, said Patricia. Shoes tell the whole story. Except us, said Lawrence. Our shoes are totally boring. You can't tell anything about us. That's because our parents prick out our shoes, said Patricia. Just wait until we're grown up. Our shoes will be insane. (laughs) In fact, Patricia had been totally correct about the man in the gray socks and the black shoes on the escalator. His name was Theodolphus Rose, and he was a member of the Nameless Order of Assassins. He had learned 873 ways to murder someone without leaving even a whisper of evidence, and he had had to kill 419 people to reach the number nine spot in the Nameless Order of Assassins hierarchy. He would have been very annoyed to learn that his shoes had given him away because he prided himself on blending with his surroundings. His was the gait of a mountain lion, stalking the undergrowth, clad in the most nondescript black slippers and mountaineer socks. The rest of his outfit was designed to fade into the background, from the dark jacket to the cargo pants with their bulky pockets, stuffed with weapons and supplies. He kept his bony, close-shaved head down, but every one of his senses was primed. His mind around countless battle scenarios so that if any of the housewives, mall-walking seniors, or teenagers attacked without warning, Theodolphus would be ready. (laughs) Theodolphus had come to this mall looking for two special children because he needed a pro bono hit to keep up his standing in the nameless order of assassins. To that end, he had made a pilgrimage to the assassin shrine in Albania, where he had fasted, inhaled vapors, and gone nine days without sleep. And then he had stared into the ornately carved seeing hole in the floor of the shrine, and he had seen a vision of things to come that still replayed in his nightmares. Death and chaos, engines of destruction, whole cities crumbling, and a plague of madness, and at the last, a war between magic and science that would leave the whole world in ashes. At the center of all this were a man and a woman who were still children now. Theodolphus's eyes had bled as he had crawled away from the seeing hole, his palms scraped away and his knees unhinged. The Nameless Order of Assassins had recently imposed a strict ban on killing minors, but Theodolphus knew this mission to be holy. Theodolphus had lost his prey. 
This was the first time he had ever been inside a mall, and he was finding the environment overwhelming with all the blaring window displays and the confusing letter number code on the giant map. For all Theodolphus knew, Lawrence and Patricia had spotted him somehow, gotten wind of his plans, and laid an ambush. The houseware store was full of knives that moved on their own. The lingerie store had a cryptic warning about the miracle lift. He didn't even know where to look. (laughs) Theodolphus was not going to lose his cool over this. He was a panther. Or or maybe a cheetah, some type of lethal cat, anyway. And he was just toying with these stupid children. Every assassin has moments where he or she feels the grip slipping as though the cliff face is spinning away and a sheer drop beckons. They had talked about this very issue at the assassin convention a few months earlier. That thing where, even as you pass unseen through the shadows, you fear that everybody is secretly watching and laughing at you. Breathe, Panther. Theodolphus told himself, breathe. He went into the men's room at the Cheesecake Factory and meditated. But somebody kept pounding on the door asking if he was about done in there. There was nothing for it but to eat a large chocolate brownie sundae. When he arrived at his table, Theodolphus stared at it. How did he know it was not poisoned? If he really was being watched... Someone could have slipped any of a dozen substances into his sundae that would be odorless and flavorless or even (laughs) chocolate-flavored. Theodolphus began to sob without making any sound. He wept like a silent jungle cat. (laughs) Then, at last, he decided that life would not be worth living if he couldn't eat ice cream from time to time without worrying it was poisoned, and he began to eat. Lawrence's father came and picked up Patricia and Lawrence, half a mile away from the mall, right around the time that Theodolphus was clutching at his throat and keeling over because the ice cream had indeed been poisoned. (laughs) And Patricia did what she mostly did when she talked to Lawrence's parents, make stuff up about all the outdoors adventures they'd been having. And we went rock climbing the other day and, and whitewater rafting, although the water was more brown than white. And we went to a goat farm, and we chased the goats until we tired them out, which, let me tell you, is hard. Goats have energy, <laughs> Patricia told Lawrence's father. Lawrence's father asked several goat questions, which the kids answered with total solemnity. <laughs> Theodolphus, meanwhile, wound up getting banned from the Cheesecake Factory for life. That tends to happen when you thrash around and foam at the mouth in a public place while groping in the crotch of your cargo pants for something which you then swallow in a single gulp. When the antidote kicked in and Theodolphus could breathe once again, he saw that his napkin had the sigil of the nameless order on it, with an ornate mark that more or less said, Hey, remember, we don't kill kids anymore, okay? (laughs) This was going to require a change of tactic. Oh, so this is a book about a mad scientist and a witch uh, named Lawrence and Patricia. And um, the first, like, third of the book, they're kids in, like, middle school, and then it jumps ahead and they're adults in San Francisco. Um, And I'm just going to read a little bit of the part where they're adults now. The parrots were eating cherry blossoms on top of a big tree at the crest of a steep hill, not too far from Grace Cathedral. A half dozen bright green birds with red splotches on their heads, just 
tearing the shit out of those flowers. Petals scattered across the sidewalk and the grass as the birds squawked and worked their crooked beaks, while Lawrence and Patricia watched from the steep bank of the parklet across the street. San Francisco never stopped astonishing Lawrence. Wild raccoons and possums wandered the streets, especially at night, and their shiny fur and long tails looked just like stray cats unless you looked twice. Skunks nested under people's houses. These parrots were native to somewhere in South America, where cherry trees never even grew, but they had still somehow developed a taste for cherry blossoms. Most of the people that Lawrence knew in the tech center spent every minute obsessing about what blogs like Computron Newsly were saying about them and their friends, or who was still getting funding in spite of the crunch. The only reason Lawrence ever even saw these urban twists of nature was because he hung out with Patricia. She saw a whole different city than he did. Truth was, Lawrence only half paid attention to the amazing sight of these tropical birds devouring flowers because he kept trying to wrap his mind around the fact that he had nearly erased another human being from existence with his careless experiments. Lawrence had spent barely slept in the last couple of weeks because he had been spending 20 hours a day trying to figure out what had gone wrong. Even now, sitting with Patricia on a rough horse blanket on the grass, Lawrence kept bracing himself for her to say something. She knew full well what had gone wrong, maybe even better than Lawrence did, and she hadn't said one judgmental word about it yet. She was probably just waiting for the right moment. Patricia broke the silence. Okay, she said, what's wrong? Her pale knee had faint, grassy indentations. Nothing, Lawrence put on a smile. I'm watching the birds. They're awesome. (laughs) Jesus, now you have to tell me what's wrong. I've known you long enough to know when you're stewing. So Lawrence admitted, I'm just waiting for you to tell me what an asshole I was to do that experiment without any proper safeguards, so you had to come in and save our asses. I figured you'd want to let me have it. Patricia squirmed, as if he was putting her in an uncomfortable position. I didn't really think it was my place, she said at last. I mean, don't you have bosses who will tell you off? I figured you guys were doing a lot of soul-searching. Yeah, of course, of course. Actually, nobody had wanted to talk about the incident afterwards. Lawrence, listen. Patricia was looking at him instead of the birds. Her eyes opened wide, and she chewed her lower lip. It really means a lot to me that you you think so highly of me, but you shouldn't build me up or or put me on a pedestal like this, or it's going to drive me nuts. I have done things that I will never be able to put behind me. You couldn't even stand to be near me if you knew everything that I've done. Lawrence had that hitting an air pocket on an airplane feeling, hearing Patricia talk this way, like Patricia was about to open up to him, and that was exciting for reasons that he couldn't even divulge to himself. But then he was terrified that she was right, and what if there were things that would give him no choice but to recoil away from her? Like, what if she was about to say that she recharged her witch powers by drinking the blood of babies? None of this, though, overrode the adrenaline buzz of, holy fuck, I feel close to this person right now. In his skin, in his scalp even, in his chest... Whatever, Lawrence said aloud. You already helped clean up after one of my biggest fuck-ups. I don't see how your shit can be worse than that. On the sidewalk, downhill from where they sat, a woman with with a stroller was yelling at her toddler, a lank-haired kid in overalls who kept running over to the cherry tree and trying to harass the parrots, who just laughed at him. The mother threatened to count to five. (laughs) 
you know, I mean, I, I've done, when I was a teenager, a bunch of us went off half-cooked and attracted this drilling project in Siberia, and some people died. And, and these days, Patricia took a heavy breath, almost shaking. These days, I curse people. Like this one guy who had raped and killed a bunch of girls, I turned him into a cloud. Also, there was this lobbyist who had helped to block environmental regulations. They called him the Picasso of the Paperwork Reduction Act, and I conned him into becoming a sea turtle. I mean, sea turtles live a long time, longer than most humans, so it wasn't murder. Also, these bureaucrats were trying to kick my friend Reginald out of Section 8 housing, and I gave one of them a rash, and so on. She couldn't look straight at Lawrence. Wow. Uh, I mean, wow, I got to admit that that's not what I pictured you doing, Lawrence said. I, I sort of imagined you more, I don't know, going around and blessing babies or something. You're thinking of fairies. If I blessed a baby, it would have exactly the same effect as if you blessed a baby. I doubt that, Lawrence snorted. Babies tend to projectile vomit at the sight of me. Anyway, it sounds like you put the smackdown on people who deserve it. I don't know. If I could turn people into turtles, there would be turtles everywhere. <laughs> Neither of them talked for a while. The mother had coaxed her kid back into the stroller and was speeding downward towards the marina. The, par the parrots had stopped munching and were just flying back and forth between the cherry tree and a couple of other big trees flanking a massive Edwardian townhouse, screaming in midair. Once or twice, they flew right over Lawrence's head, green plumage extended like a salute. I guess I'm curious, Lawrence said. I mean, do you have an ethical framework? I mean, you know, how do you know what to do? He spoke carefully because this was obviously kind of an intense conversation for Patricia. She had always she was averting her gaze now. Um, Patricia said, raising her shoulders so her breasts lifted up inside her white T-shirt. I mean, sometimes I'm following instructions from you know some of the other witches, and, and I trust them. But also, also I can't just turn everybody into turtles. I have to go with the situation. And, and see those parrots. She gestured at the candy apple birds who were back at their tasty cherry tree. Yeah? Oh, shit, I lost my page. Yeah, uh, of course. But Lawrence watched the red spots on their heads bopping around. They seemed to be taunting anybody who might want to cage them. I can understand what those birds are saying. Mostly, they're pissed at their friend in the middle, who keeps almost getting eaten by hawks, because he's too dumb to stay high up. And those crows over there, too. I can understand what they're all saying right now. Wow. Lawrence hadn't even noticed the crows on the power line nearby, watching them intently. So you can understand all of them, all the time. It takes a little bit of concentration, but yeah. And it doesn't drive you nuts to hear animals talking all the time? Not really. I guess I'm used to it. I mean, most of the time, I tune it out the same way that you tune all the people talking around you. But at the same time, I always have in the back of my mind this idea of what would the crows think? I mean, crows are really smart. The crows seem to be having some kind of intense political debate, cawing and filibustering. One of them shook its wings almost like a wet dog. Lawrence knew he was about to screw everything up. He should just keep his mouth shut. But then Patricia would know that he was keeping an opinion to himself, and that could be worse. Please don't take this the wrong way, he said. But I don't think that that's the basis for an ethical framework. 
what would the crows think? I mean, the crows can't fully grasp the ramifications of the kind of choices you're talking about. A, a crow couldn't understand how a nuclear reactor works or, or what the Paperwork Reduction Act is. Do you know what the Paperwork Reduction Act is? Lawrence was burning up inside his too tight collar. Um, I mean, it's a law, right? And I'm guessing it reduces paperwork? Jesus, do you even listen to yourself? Yes, I know that crows can't understand nuclear physics, not unlike most people. I'm just saying that, I'm not saying I asked the crows for scientific advice. Lawrence finally risked looking up, and Patricia was more laughing than upset, with a little bit of eye-rolling in the mix. He could live with that. Yeah, I said, I'm just saying some more ethical questions are more complex. Sure, yeah. Patricia shook her head and sort of whistled, but you're colossally missing the point, almost like on purpose. I'm saying that there are a lot of different ways of looking at the world, and maybe, maybe I actually do have a unique advantage because I can hear different voices. You really don't get that? Lawrence felt like the crows were laughing at him, as if maybe Patricia had tipped them off somehow. I get that. I do. I just think, I think ethics are universal and derived from principles. And I think that situational ethics are a slippery slope. Plus, I don't think crows have much, if any, notion of ethics. I don't think a crow has ever even considered the categorical imperative. (laughs) I love that this conversation started out with you worrying that I was judging you and ended up with you judging me. Patricia had definitely stiffened a little and gotten a little further away on the blanket. Lawrence was feeling kind of toxic and also worrying that he had gone and pissed off the one person that he could actually talk to in this stupid world. I'm not. I'm not judging you. I'm not. You have to know that. I already said if it was me, there would be turtles everywhere. I don't actually think ethics are derived from principles at all. Patricia scooted a little closer and and touched Lawrence's arm with a few cool fingertips where she had gripped it earlier. I think the most basic thing of ethics is being aware of how your actions affect others and having an awareness of of what they want and how they feel, and that's always going to depend on who you're dealing with. Lawrence took a deep breath and realized that he and Patricia were having a disagreement and that this wasn't the end of the world. Like... It wasn't ideal that she had opened up to him about this area that she was incredibly sensitive about and he had immediately started shooting down her ideas, but she could take it and she could give as good as she got. Actually, I get what you're saying. I was kind of thinking the same thing recently, Lawrence said. He told her about how he imagined going to another planet and seeing for firsthand that none of the things that we took for granted on Earth were true there, that there was no such thing as the way things were supposed to be. And maybe that's what you have right here on Earth, a non-human perspective on reality. So, yeah, I do get it. Cool, she said. She rooted in her bag until she found her caddy, which was letting her know that she had someplace else to be. Lawrence wanted to say something else, like the fact that Patricia worried so much about being a monster probably meant that she wouldn't ever be one. But she was already tromping down the hill, pausing only for a second to say something, advice, or maybe just props, to the parrots. Which showered her with white fluff, like rice, at a wedding. So we're going to open it up to a Q&A. If anybody has any questions for Charlie Jane, I'm sure she'd be delighted to, um, to answer them. Questions? 
So first of all, no ants? No ants on the skin? No? Okay, good. Good. Yeah. Anyone? Yeah? Okay, hi. What's going on? <laughs> Great job. Oh, thanks. Um, uh, I loved the book, and what I was really interested in was how you came up with the sort of intersection between uh, witchcraft and science, and how that loves together. Does that make sense? Um, like how they felt. How the how 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 did you fall in love with mm, witchcraft and science, and then how did you make that fall? I mean, originally this was like a book about like, I mean, it was like, it's like, I thought of it as like a witch versus a mad scientist and they're like enemies and they're rivals and like they're zooming around having like magic versus science duels all the time and like, you know, like flying carpet versus rocket car, ray gun versus wand, you know, blah, blah, blah. They're casting spells and, you know, setting like science force field traps or whatever. I don't know. And I wrote some of that and it was kind of boring. And, um, but you know, I mean, I started to think of it as a relationship story and every relationship story is about kind of the different perspectives that people bring to the relationship and actually I was talking about this the other day in another one of these events some of what I really loved was not so much like where they're you know having like a disagreement of like magic versus science but where they're just kind of like approaching the same question from different angles or where they're having an interesting conversation and they have different perspectives but it's not like I disagree with everything you're saying or like you know there's a thing like I don't know um, particularly this is somewhat in the TV version but also especially the novelization of the Doctor Who story The Demons where um, basically the whole story is like the Doctor being like no science and like Miss what's her name Miss Hawthorne being like magic and Doctor being science and like that's kind of like the stereotypical thing in my mind of like what that could be like of like you know how do we explain the world and like it you know I feel like that's been done a lot the kind of just arguing about which perspective is right or like and I felt like it was more interesting to kind of have them at right angles to each other than having them actually coming ahead on and disagreeing all the time and then when they do have a really serious disagreement it actually is more interesting than if it's just like that's been going on for the whole book so that was something that I really kind of played around with and the other thing as the more I got into it, the more I thought of it as like nature and technology. And obviously, we live in a time when we're all kind of struggling with how are we going to get to have technology without like wrecking our own habitat and making this planet no longer habitable to our own species. And that is a thing that we all have to answer for ourselves and hopefully come up with an answer that will allow us to continue on this planet and so that was the thing that without getting all heavy handed and like you know there's nobody at, at any point you know starts like there's no lectures in the book but that was something that I was definitely thinking about was like how do you resolve the sort of thing of nature and technology and how do you how do you bring them together in a way that actually is constructive sorry that was a really long answer Love it. neat Not so much, actually. That's an interesting point because magic often is tied to spirituality and... um I really tried super hard to avoid having religion in this book. That was something that I was like, that was like the third rail that I was going to try to avoid. And in fact, there's a section which I had to cut where one of Patricia's magical instructors is like a Baptist minister. And he explains to her that there's no contradiction in his mind between being a Baptist and practicing magic. They're two separate things. One is like a practice. It's like if you practice, it's like jogging or whatever. I don't know. Or, you know, it's like a, a thing that he does that he thinks is positive and helpful, but he doesn't see it as having anything to do with his religion at all. And I, I love that section. It just has to be cut for length reasons, but I very, very carefully avoided... I, that was a thing that I was super worried about having in the book that I did not want to get into at all. Um, Javi, and then, and then you. Javi. So, uh, so, 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 your work, I really well know that you're, you're uh, 
First of all, I'm sorry. Because wow, <laughs> you know my work really well, I'm like, I'm really sorry if there's anything I can do to make it up to you. One of the things I really liked about this book is that, is that there are ideas, like in every sentence and every page, that you could go on a journey with that idea and have an entirely other novel that mm-hmm. was with that idea, and it's, it's, it's a really amazing thing. How do you, you know, sort of as you're writing it, what are the judgments that you make to, because the book has such a great control over its own narrative, how do you sort of regulate your, you know, desire to kind of put in all of these amazing other things that are, and keep those, keep those tangential to the main, to the main narrative? That's, I mean, that's, that's a really tough thing in general, like keeping it, sort of keeping all the stuff that I want to have in there without, like, getting it overwhelm the characters, and I think that in general, like, I mean, the passages I just read, I, I love reading those passages because most of them are just Patricia and Lawrence talking to each other, and there's not a lot of action happening in, in those scenes for the most part. And I, I, I think that you can do a lot if... if I, I like seeing characters geek out together. I think that I wrote about this the other day on my little Tumblr. I like seeing characters geek out together. I feel like if I see two characters geeking out, especially if it's just something that they're enjoying geeking out about, I automatically feel their relationship and I bond with both of them because I like to geek out. And so I feel like you can get away with a lot if in that context. There was a lot of stuff in the book where I was like, oh, this is a really cool idea. And then it just, it kind of turned into a giant sprawling mess and I had to like aggressively bonsai the hell out of it. There was a lot of freaking bonsai that went on in the revision process of this book. But anything, basically the rule of thumb was anything that, that I felt could tie back into that relationship or prop up that relationship got to stay anything that didn't or that was just like shiny thing over here had to go and there was a lot of shiny things a lot and you hi I don't want to hear over you suss out for me the climate versus technology issue because I really see that. <laughs> <laughs> wow okay I need to sort it all out <laughs> you know I see a movement off of the coal manufacturer uh, you know Capitalism. I mean, I a lot of good stuff happening with technology, and I just and I'm really uh, attached to the climate issue. So I just kind of want to hear where you're coming from. I mean, uh, this is something I've obviously thought about a lot, and I'm kind of obsessed with how do we how do we resolve that um, in a way that's constructive. And I actually gave a TEDx talk about this topic, which you can find on on YouTube. And basically, the 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 nut shell of that is that um, you know I, I really think that we need to stop thinking of science and technology as, as like opposites or, or science and nature as opposites or as a dichotomy and start kind of integrating them more and just assume that nature that science that technology is going to work with nature and that nature is in some sense part of technology like nature is something that we kind of created tens of thousands of years ago and decided was not us it was like something that was like separate from us but it actually is connected to us in every way we're part of nature and it's a concept that we came up with. And so I think that we need to integrate them. And I think that, you know, I really, like I kind of, I go on and on about this in my TED talk, but TEDx talk, but uh, I feel like the cities of the future will be grown rather than built. I think that um, we need, I'm looking at Alyssa, my colleague, who's written a lot more about this than I have. But I think that we, we need to start thinking of technology as, as something that works with nature rather than is separate from it. Yes, hi. Oh, okay. Well, those are not the comparisons I expected. 
I mean, there's so many. I mean, I'm, um, you know, my, my number one influence of all time is probably Doris Lessing, uh, who wrote these amazing books that sort of have, you know, are incredibly grounded character-based books, but also go off in incredibly weird directions. And her stuff is amazing. Uh, I mean, Kurt Vonnegut, Douglas Adams, um, that kind of, like, very angry, silly humor is something that I really love and aspire to. Um, and, you know, yeah, I mean, stuff like that. Um, I think that, uh, I mean, there were just so many things that I was thinking of. Actually, I'm looking at Corey because his book, uh, Little Brother, there are certain parts of this book where I totally had that in the back of my mind while I was writing it. And it was sort of my imaginary like version of Little Brother that was like this just brilliantly angry, kind of like geeky. There's a little bit of that in some of Lawrence's moments, I think. And just I, I kind of just pulled from all over the place. I was very magpie-like, kind of. But uh, I think number one would be Doris Lessing. I think it's a really interesting about the, the characters' ethical uh, hurdles that they have to leap over in respect to their own particular powers. And with Patricia being able to listen to and talk to animals, did she have, does she have a, a different perspective in terms of eating them? That's a really good question, and that's something that I um, thought about a lot, and like it's in the book, but it's not at all ever talked about. She, I mean, I actually... Because like you do a ton of stuff when you're promoting a book, I did like an art, an interview with like a food blogger recently. So they asked about Patricia's eating habits, and to my mind, Patricia is mostly vegan. She will eat, you know, she'll be kind of vegetarian. She'll eat dairy on occasion. Like she's 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 not like a super hardline vegan. She's I mean, at, at the part where she's an adult, she's just out of college, and she's still kind of making her way in the world, and she's still figuring out exactly how far she can push things in terms of like imposing her preferences on other people but I saw her I mean there's a lot of references to her eating vegan food in the in the book that's something that is like almost every time you see her eating it's mentioned that it's a vegan thing but her roommates cook this thing called passive aggressive lasagna which I do picture having cheese in it and she also works in a bakery so she works with butter sometimes uh, so she's she's not a hardline vegan but she, that's her preference and cool. Anu yes hi so I, I find a lot of my Oh, yay. So I, I which brings up the question of why is the wish a girl and Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, you know, that was just how it came to me. And I felt like in some ways it was playing to like gender stereotypes that like the nerd the geek character is a guy and the, the witch character is a woman. I felt, you know, I felt bad about that. And that was something I struggled with. I mean, I felt like that was that was probably, you know, it was it was definitely the more safe choice, but it was the way that the characters sort of came to me, and I I felt like at least with having that, I was able to like kind of play against stereotypes in a lot of ways. Like Lawrence is not a very stereotypical geek guy in a lot of ways. Like he doesn't really act like you're like I mean the Sheldon from Big Bang Theory thing is interesting because I think of Lawrence as actually being he's 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 pretty attuned to other people's emotions. He prefers having women around. His lab that he works in is mostly women. He lives with a woman. He's very like he has like immense respect and admiration for like almost all the other geeks in the book are women and like a ton of the witches in the book are men. And I just tried to play around with that and like kind of in a way, make up for the fact that I had made this slightly, you know, stereotypical choice in the basis of the novel by kind of chipping away at it on the edges. And uh, but I did, I did think a lot about that. 
Corey. So you, you said the book in San Francisco, and it's all about tech and magic, given the ridiculous hostility about Angelinos and San Franciscans. Could you please, without offending anyone in this room, describe how you would have said it in L.A.? <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, first of all, I said it in San Francisco because I'm super lazy, and because, you know, if you, if you know a place really well, you can just put in lots of details, and it comes easily to you, and you don't have to spend, you don't have to, like, either go wander around there looking for stuff or it's just there's there's a certain realness that you get like the thing the example I keep thinking of is like Robert B. Parker wrote all these novels set in Boston and it's like you can pretty much smell the air on the Boston Common for better or worse and you can pretty much like taste like the the stuff that Spencer is cooking and it's just like everything feels super real because he knows Boston and he wrote one novel where he where Spencer goes to London to solve a case in London and it's like you know I cracked open the London A to Z and like looked at there's a thing that's in London I can use that in my book and it just feels completely fake and like a painted backdrop and it's really hard it's I'm realizing that this is a thing that I have a really hard time with and you know it's just so much easier to set it in a place that you know really well I don't know LA as well but if I was going to set it here I mean you know I don't know I mean I guess that's really really a loaded question um okay thanks I'm going to just go with that. Um, yay. Any last questions? Like, did you want to... Uh, it's interesting that Mark is afraid of bullies. I've always been afraid of bullies. So I've been obsessed with martial arts and taking Taekwondo. And Loris is uh, averse as a person toward uh, boxing and judo. But he's in his world, when he's in his zone, the zone is his world of science is his zone, his world. Is that right. right? His zone, his world, where he is, like that is where his niche of excellence is his world and his zone is his scientific world. He doesn't want to be in any other world with science. That's the only world he wants to be in. That's correct, yeah. And, you know, he, his parents, judo and boxing and things are among the many, many, many things his parents want him to do. And he's just, anything his parents want him to do, he just automatically doesn't want to do. <laughs> okay, one last question, maybe? I don't know. Yeah. Did you have something with those? Or um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, any, any, any last questions? Hi. Any last yeah. There is probably not a sequel. I mean, maybe 10 years from now I'll like suddenly have an idea for a sequel, but probably not. I wrote it in such a way that it would be hard to write a sequel. Cool. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.